Welcome to the OnScript podcast, your home for world-class conversations on scripture and theology, where you get to meet some of the best in the field. Visit us at onscript.study. Say hello on Twitter at OnScript Podcast and stop by our Facebook page at facebook.com slash OnScript. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the OnScript Podcast. This is Matt Lynch coming to you from Regent College in Vancouver. I'm a host along with Matt Bates, Drew Johnson, Aaron Heim, Chris Tilling, Amy Brown-Hughes, and Jules Martinez Olivieri. Thanks so much for tuning in. In this episode, we have Aaron Heim interviewing Willie James Jennings about his book, After Whiteness. And this is an important book, and I hope it's a stimulating conversation for you. Thanks so much for listening. Hello, OnScript listeners. This is Aaron Heim coming to you from Wycliffe Hall in Oxford. And today I have the pleasure and the privilege of welcoming Dr. Willie James Jennings back on the podcast to talk about his new book on theological education entitled After Whiteness and Education in Belonging. Willie, we're so glad to have you back. Welcome to OnScript. Glad to be back. Good to be with you, Aaron. Yeah, good to be with you. Well, you're probably best known for your work in Christian theology, and especially for your work on um, on race and theology, and on your book, The Christian Imagination. Um, so, in what ways does this book on theological education, you know, continue on from or overlap with that previous work or your previous work? And so this, and thanks for having me on this this little book, um, you know, builds in many ways on something I said at the very beginning of the Christian imagination, where I talked about um, the difficulty for theologians trained in the West since the rise of the colonial moment to think theologically about their own identities and to think theologically about the formation of their subjectivity and the subject positions they operate in in the academy. And so in part, I'm building from uh, that comment, but behind that comment is my long history uh, in theological education and in higher education as a faculty, administrative um, leader, and also as a consultant for um, our governing body uh, for theological schools in the states and for um, the, um, the the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning. And so um, those many years of, of watching this thing, as we say, watching the sausage get made, you know, looking at things from the kitchen and not out front uh, where the clean tables are, it showed me the insides and the, gave me insights into the challenges and the problems for doing our theological work. Yeah, and thanks. For, for those of you who maybe aren't familiar with Dr. Jennings and his work, he is currently an associate professor of systematic theology and Africana studies at Yale Divinity. But then he, as he just mentioned, is also uh, a former dean of Duke Divinity School. So in other words, you do bring this wealth of experience to the topic of theological education. And, you know, as someone who is toward the beginning of my career, maybe inching toward the middle. But I'm really thankful just to have the, the opportunity to have a conversation with, you know, a wise and, and trusted guide on this topic. All that being said, this is a really challenging book, Willie. This is, and I, and I hasten to add that it's an incredibly life-giving, it's an incredibly vocation-affirming book, but it's a, it's a challenging book um, with some, you know, what some might consider to be even just a challenging title or a provocative title to the book. So how did you come to this title after, after whiteness? This, this title, many people misunderstood this title. They thought I was um, 
gesturing toward a post-racial future, as it used to be said. And I tell people, no, that, that's not at all what I'm gesturing toward. Um, the, the, the title After Whiteness is a play on a famous book by Alistair McIntyre called After Virtue. And um, anyone who reads the book, especially the, the first chapter, the, the, or should I say the second chapter, the fragment chapter, they'll see exactly why I named it After Whiteness. That is, I'm, I'm going after the problems in formation, the, the problems of um, how we cultivate not only theologians, not only people in theological studies, but how people are cultivated in, inside Western educational systems. And so after whiteness is um, really speaking to that problem of formation and then asking, can there be a different kind of formation that really is not a formation in whiteness? And so what do you mean by whiteness? That word is a bit charged. Um, absolutely, absolutely. So many people misunderstand um, this. And in many places, Aaron, where I, where I will speak, you know, for some people to even say the word whiteness already borders on hate speech because of hmm. the way in which they've been um, not only socialized, but cultivated to think about their identities. But here, what we want to understand is that whiteness is not phenotype. Whiteness is not culture. Whiteness is not biology. And whiteness certainly isn't a part of God's creation. Whiteness is a way of being in the world and a way of seeing the world at the same time, a way of organizing, shaping, and envisioning the world. And whiteness is having the power to realize that vision. Whiteness is imagining the world from an imperial position of thinking and making. And whiteness has been presented as an aspiration for all those who have seen the possibilities of a world after the rise of colonialism, a world in which we can things can be changed, people can be owned, land can be owned, animals can be possessed. And so whiteness is an imperial position of imagining. So when I talk about whiteness, that means that anyone can operate in whiteness. Now, of course, what makes this more complicated for so many people is that given the rise of the racial condition, people have had to deal with the way in which racial identity has been sutured on, fused onto their existential realities. Now, for so many people of color, they've all understood in various ways that there's a difference between their existential reality, who they are, and the, the racial identity that's been placed on them. The, the, the stereotypes, the derogatory vision, all of that. And they've gone through and continue to go through that important and um, urgent work of pulling from racial identity, those stereotypes, those visions, the, the little pieces that do speak to their cultural realities, their, their, their existential realities. But it's been, it's a constant negotiation. Well, for those who have achieved whiteness, and we want to put it that way, for those who have achieved whiteness, that kind of negotiation has never been imagined as necessary. If whiteness has always been presented as positive and one has seen oneself as fully white, then the thought of actually seeing distance between who I actually am and this reality of whiteness 
would seem strange. So for so many people to say white, they then translate that immediately into who they actually fully always will be eternally are. (laughs) So the very thought of critiquing whiteness for some people means that you are calling my very existence into question. When in point of fact, we're doing just the opposite. We're calling forward your existence. And so if you have to name, what is it that, I suppose most white people fail to understand about whiteness, it's that. But then what do most white theological educators fail to understand about the presence of whiteness or the construct of whiteness in the academy? They fail to see it. And their their fundamental failure, our fundamental failure as theologians, and by theologians I mean all those involved in theological studies, is our fundamental failure is to not see it, to see it as a reality within which people do their work. And because of that, if you find so many brilliant scholars who both inadvertently and all sometimes on purpose defend whiteness, believing that they are, that they are in point of fact, doing a, a moral and ethical thing to defend whiteness. When in point of fact, what they don't realize is that you're, you're defending a, a reality of identity reconstruction. So what are the marks of whiteness in education? Some of this I talk about in the Christian imagination, but I go into more detail in mm-hmm. after whiteness. So the, we have all been formed to be geared toward um, the embodiment of a particular image of the educated state, Aaron, all of us in the West. An image that drives our curricular imaginations, drives our pedagogical strategies, drives our mission statements, sometimes explicitly, but often implicitly. And it's been there from the very beginning of the colonial moment. And that image is of a white, self-sufficient man who embodies what I call three demonically derived virtues, control, possession, and mastery. Control, possession, and mastery. And that man has been imagined as the one who would build the world and build the world better. Now, by saying that man, we're, again, we're talking about a particular kind of persona. We're talking a particular kind of form, a kind of intellectual form. So a white, self-sufficient, masculinist intellectual form. And we have been shaped to aim our life toward that. Because that, we are told, at the end of the, the process of that torturous shaping, <laughs> we will have voice that it will be recognized and respected. And you cannot underestimate the significance of those two words for the performance of the intellectual life to be recognized and to be respected. And, and when anyone reads after whiteness, uh, I've had people respond to this from, from almost all over the world. The, their experiences are uncannily similar. <laughs> Whether they're in a seminar in 
England, whether they're in seminar in Scotland, whether they're in seminar in Australia, New Zealand, Canada, the United States, Argentina, Hong Kong, anywhere in the States, the, the experiences are uncannily similar of, what, of the torture and the pain of trying to come to the point where you are recognized and respected. Yeah, I think anyone reading this book is going to, who's been in, in theological education, either students or staff or faculty, are going to read all of your stories and think, I've had that experience. I know exactly what that's like. I had that I had that moment, you know, many, many times reading this this book. But I think it's important to say that this critique of whiteness is not, you know, it's not an end in itself in the book. In fact, the 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 major, I think, uh the contribution that this book makes is not the critique of whiteness, although that's incredibly important, because as you say, people don't see it. White educators don't see it, at least. Um, but the alternative vision, I think, is what's really, it's, it, it was such a good book to read at the end of an academic year. So what's, what's your vision for life-giving theological education? You know, what's the opposite of self-sufficiency and, or, and control and mastery? You're right, and the, the, the goal of the book is to draw us into a life-giving vision. And so in the book, I suggest that there is a different overarching image that should drive the educational endeavor that challenges what we've been given. And that is the image of Jesus and the crowd, Jesus and the crowd. And that, that, that image is so important because the crowd is a motley crew. It's people who have no reason at all to be together. People who, in any other normal circumstances, would not even talk to each other. In fact, would probably kill each other. <laughs> but they are there. They are there shoulder to shoulder, you know, smelling each other's breath. <laughs> they're, they are there shoulder to shoulder because they want to get something from this man, Jesus, or hear this man, Jesus, or they've heard about this man, Jesus, or they're in desperate need of what this man, Jesus, has to offer. So they are there. And so Jesus gathers a crowd. This is the point. So I propose an alternative vision of formation that aims at one crucial thing that has been banished from the academy. And what is that thing? Belonging. Belonging. So and here's the question. What would it mean to place at the very center of the intellectual work we do, the intellectual life, the work of formation and cultivation? What would it mean to place belonging at the very center? So here, here's where the rubber meets the road. The, the, um, by placing belonging at the center, what we aim to cultivate and whatever we are teaching, whatever we're doing as, a, as, a, as an academic exercise, as an educational exercise, what we're trying to cultivate is the ability of people, of someone to gather people together, people who would not normally want to be together. In fact, people who hate each other, but they are brought together by the way you do your work. So whether you're going to be a doctor, lawyer, pharmacist, nurse, poet, theologian, biblical scholar, what characterizes, what characterizes cultivation done well, development done well, formation done well, 
It's not that you exhibit white, self-sufficient, masculinist, intellectual form, showing control, possession, and mastery, but that you gather people together by the very character of your work. That's what you do. Now, that, that vision turns us much more toward the direction of a God who loves and reconciles and gathers than the other. And I'll tell you what, it, what else it does. It turns us away from the cancerous, distorting, destroying, damaging reality that is at the heart of so much intellectual formation in the West, which all of us who are inside of this know that that is the dirty little secret. And, that, and in the book, I try to show, as I said, bring people into the back door and show them the tears, the anguish, the pain, the struggling that is in the back room, but not out on stage. So how do we finally redeem the educational process, especially in theological education? Yeah, that's a question I will be pondering uh as the summer goes on, particularly because I was just helpfully tasked with redesigning one of our core courses. So this was an even more a, a timely book to be thinking about. And, and one thing, um, this takes us a bit in a tangent. So if you don't want to go this, this way, that's fine. But I think, you know, one of the, the main, um, you know, the basic premise of your book is that education is formation. It's formation one way or the other. Not it can be, not it should be, but it is. Um, and I just wonder, um, you know, there seems to be this, this shift in discourse around education away from the language of formation and toward like the language of consumption. So education, you know, I just saw a Guardian headline this morning, for example, that said half of UK students think that a degree is poor value for money. You know, so education is a product um, that the institution is selling and students are consumers and they're customers. So I, I guess my question for you is, you know, is that indeed a paradigm shift or is that just a natural step in the progression, you know, of, of education and whiteness? Um, maybe we'll start there. I have a few other questions about that. That's a great question. And I, I do think it's, it's a, as I say, it's a, a modulation inside the same problem. And so to, to understand education as product is, in fact, a, a part of the reality of mastery. To understand education as commodity, and I talk about this in the book in terms of the commodity fragment, that um, to, for those of us in the academy, we are, we are presented as intellectual merchants. <laughs> and so that, that fragmentation is a part of it. But now there is another side to it as well. And that is uh, increasing numbers of students don't trust the educational process because increasing numbers sense the formation that has been there, the formation toward white self-sufficient masculine form. And so they are, they are saying, I don't trust, I don't trust this. <laughs> I don't trust this formation. The difficulty is that they are, they are yet caught inside of it. So to simply resist it, and then to try to think of it in terms of kind of capitalist exchange value, to think of it in terms of commodity, further entrenches them in the very thing that they don't trust. So as you said a moment ago, you are still being formed, but you're being formed more precisely to understand yourself, 
as a child of the master, inside the master's dream. And what is the master's dream? That you would exhibit control, possession, and mastery. So if I understand my education as discrete bits of knowledge that I own, that I control, that I possess, that I can then use in the way I want to use them, you are yet still in his dream. But we understand that for so many people, especially for so many students of color, they, they sense, they sense that there is a formation here that I really don't want to have anything to do with. And the response has been, no, thank you. Just give me, just give me that piece over there. <laughs> These other things that you want to offer to me, I'm really not interested in. I just want that little piece because I'm, I'm going to stay in my community, stay with my people, and I don't want I don't want you touching my life in that way. Which, of course, for those of us within theological studies, this is diametrically opposed to what we are about. And what is that? The building of communion and the cultivating of those who gestate communion. That's what we want. But it is a problem for us. It is a fundamental problem for us. And there are so many institutions that are not even prepared to understand either one of the things I just said. They're not yet ready to understand fully the problem of the commodification and the fragmentation of knowledge. Nor are they able to attune themselves to the students who are resisting any talk of formation because they see behind those faculty and administrators that man standing there saying, come, I'm going to make you me. Yeah, that's, that's really well said. And I think, I mean, there's, just, there's so many things to kind of un, unpack further about that. But I think one of my concerns, you know, my worries as one who was, you know, I got into theological education because I deeply uh, believe that it is formational. Um, and I'm concerned about the commodification of education. It, but inside that, there's a real, you know, there's a real critique from our students that we need to hear. And, and that's important. Um, but I, my fear is that we're going to respond to it by just giving them our understanding of what better value for money is more knowledge, more mastery, more, you know, and, 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 and I guess then my question for you is how do we, how do we interrupt this trajectory? How do we break that cycle so that we bust out of this paradigm of commodification that is dehumanizing for everybody? Yeah, I, that, that's a great question. And, in, in my first chapter, when I talk about fragments, I mentioned this earlier, but, but the fragments is the beginning of thinking. To think of ourselves as fragment workers is an important first step for, for educators and administrators. First step, especially for those of us inside theological education. And so we're working with three fragments. The first fragment is the fragment that is knowledge itself. We don't have the full, comprehensive, knowledge of anything. <laughs> we don't have everything Jesus said. Amen. Everything Jesus did. We don't have everything <laughs> the disciples said. The, the, uh, when it comes to everything Christian, we have pieces, shards. We have slices. And here's the point, Aaron. That's good. That is actually good. And what God does, what the Spirit does, is to work with us as we're working with the fragments. As I like to say, all you have to do 
why this why this is so easy for people, to, especially in the academy, to understand is all you have to do is put a syllabus together one time, and then you understand that you are a fragment worker. <laughs> you, okay, I'm going to take a little piece of this, a little piece of this. Oh, oh, that's too much. Okay, a little bit of, let me break that down some more. Okay, okay, just that little piece. I'll stick that there, stick this there. Oh, wait a minute, I'm going to rearrange that. And every semester, okay, no, I can't use that piece anymore. Okay, let me use this piece. We are, we are fragment workers, and we are doing a kind of quilt work. Now, but here are the two problems that we hit right away, Aaron. The first problem is that our education, our formation as professors, as, as would-be professors, doctoral formation, gives us the illusion that we're supposed to show mastery, which we're supposed to show a kind of comprehension, a kind of reality of the whole. W-H-O-L-E, the whole. We're supposed to, in some way, show mastery of it all. And in a sense, show that through the syllabus, through our teaching, through our lecturing, which is already the first lie. <laughs> it's already the first lie. But the second problem is that we forget that this is a shared work, a, a quilting with others, a quilting with other people. And so our pieces need to be quilted, tied together with other people. And so this first reality is good and beautiful. We work with the fragments. But now there's a second fragment reality, and that is working with the fragmentation that many of our students experience and come to us with. That is, they live, they are living after the colonial wound after, in the aftermath of colonialism where their, their peoples and their cultures have been shattered and they're trying to gather the fragments that remain. But here's what happens. They bring those fragments or they're trying to grab those fragments and they bring them to their theological education and they're hoping that they will find professors and administrators who are going to weave those fragments with the fragments that they are trying to present in their classes and in the curriculum. And, and so they're, they're looking for a weaving. This is what's behind the, the plea for more cultural sensitivity, more diversity, more, uh, uh, more diversity in the readings and so forth in a class. They want a weaving of the stories and wisdom and knowledge of their peoples with the pieces that are being presented here. And not just one particular formally colonized group, but all of them weaving together their pieces and those pieces being woven together with what's going on in the academy. Faculty and administrative staff have to hear that work and enter that work. But here's the problem. If my vision is one in which I have to show control, possession, and mastery, then I'm going to say, I really don't know enough about Jamaican culture or enough about Caribbean culture or enough about Samoan culture, or I just don't know enough to actually be able to be helpful to you. But I do know a lot about Paul. <laughs> <laughs> but those things I don't know anything about. And so, therefore, go elsewhere if we get somebody to help you with that. No, the, the point is not mastery. The point is desire. Desire to weave together. And... And guess what? To be a teacher who's also a learner. Tell me more about Caribbean culture. And each year, I'm learning to work with the fragments. So let me come back to that example of, 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 a, of a quilting. So if you've ever watched a group of quilters, say quilt a blanket. So you have these people, 
sitting around, and very often it's women, thank God, sitting around, and they each have a, a, a cachet, a, a, a bag full of pieces. And they'll take their pieces out, and someone across the table, oh, I, say, I love that purple and yellow you have right there. Take that back out. That goes nicely with this green I have right here. See, it has a little bit of purple in it. Oh, that's great. Now, wait, wait a minute, what do you have over there? So they, they start laying out pieces together. And, and all of a sudden, what you start to see is this beautiful quilt that you could not have imagined by yourself. But with all these people around pulling out their various pieces, you start to pull it together. This is what is supposed to be the case with theological education. Oh, this student is from Samoa. This student is from New Zealand. And oh, what, did, what, story, what was that story you just told? You know, that's very much like a story that origin tells. So tell us that story again. So, so that, that's what's supposed to happen. Now, here's the thing. A school, a faculty that does that, not as a one-time, one-off experiment, but it makes that fundamental to the way it does its work, starts to build up, starts to build up a beautiful living, not archive, repertoire. Not archive, repertoire. Now there's an archive there, but what they're really building up is a repertoire. And after a while, new students who come in they start to sense that this is actually my home because now we are five years, seven years, 10 years into them learning the stories of Samoans, learning the stories of Kosa speaking people, learning the stories of the Zulu people. And all of a sudden a student who comes, this, this place knows me, this place understands me. And now, the student may never say, you know, the faculty uh, have mastery over my <laughs> culture, but they, but they have a sense of it. And I can, I can sense that others have been here before me and others will come after me because this is not our home. But so that's the second fragment, third fragment. I'm, I'm going on too long, so I'm sorry, but let me. No, the, no, the, no, that's the, great. The, the third fragment is the one we've been talking about. And this is the fragment we must resist. And that is the commodity fragment. So the commodity fragment, though, can only be resisted if those first two fragments are actually being worked with. Then we can turn to the commodity fragment, which is turning the stories and the sayings and the wisdom of peoples, turning them into discrete pieces of knowledge to be bought and sold, archived, stolen, hidden, and possessed. And so we challenge that reality of colonialism that continues to this very moment, right? You know, it's, it's a terrible thing. Students recognize this all the time. So when a faculty person who's trying to do diversity work in their syllabus, in their course, starts off with the, you know, the ancient masters, then goes to the great European masters, then lays out all the crucial matters, and then at the very end of the semester, you know, as students you say, week eight, week nine, week ten, or week ten, and week eleven, week twelve, week eleven, twelve, or thirteen. Then they then they trot out a few people of color. 
at the very end. Now we're going to get a, a bit of application of what of these crucial principles we've learned. Well, that's that's the commodity. That's the commodity fragment. These pieces have been stored over in the corner. We possess them. We take them out. We drop them in. Semester over, we put them back away. We take them back out. Stick them in. But we show that they are not a part of the deep internal weaving in our own thinking or the school's thinking. They're just commodity pieces. Yes, that is something I actually work really hard on in my own syllabus to think, how can I center non-white voices? Not how can I tack them on and include them, but like, where can I, how can I show my students, first of all, how central they have been in my own thinking and processing as a theological educator, but, um, but just to show the beauty and diversity of the body of Christ and to think, you know, we, <laughs> we have so much to learn from people who are, you know, who have different experiences than us. Um, and, and I just think it, that's absolutely central to, to, in my mind, to the formation of theological education, that it needs to be, you know, it needs to have what I would say, like a peripheral vision. We need to be thinking, thinking and seeing more broadly than, than perhaps we've been trained to do. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and, And I'm thinking of that just in terms of like my own, um, I can I can point to the people who are most influential in my own kind of training and, and formation um, as a as a student and then a, as a teacher. Um, and they're one of them is uh, someone who's actually been on the podcast, Danny Danny Carroll, who teaches at Wheaton and pressed this. So um, so I feel really grateful that I've had that kind of voice of of speaking, yeah, to center non-white voices and how important it is for. A, you know, a number of years, but you, it's always something to resist. And I know that he always felt like he had to keep pushing it, keep resisting, uh, and, and resisting in a life, you know, a life giving, a building way, not a destructive way. Um, yeah. I, I have a question about the, the importance of stories because you've just told a number, well, you've painted this picture of weaving together of stories and your book is filled with stories for stories of, you know, fellow travelers, students uh, who were students at the same time you were, um, students that you had, colleagues that you had when you were working in theological education. And each of those stories is introduced with this phrase, I remember. I remember so-and-so. So I'm wondering, what, what connections do you see between this remembering, this act of remembering, and theological education or theological educators? So what does this act of remembering contribute to this cultivation of belonging that you're after? Yeah, I, I'm trying to tap into one of the one of the crucial characteristics of academics, and I I, I have a poem at the very beginning of the book where I, where I say, "We professors have wild memories," <laughs> and this is this is a characteristic that I think so many people um, never note when it comes to academics that we are people who remember and we remember in an utterly undomesticated way. What does that mean? So we remember things that other human beings would, would never in their life remember. You know, you remember that comment you made to me? We were having coffee 17 years ago at the AAR and, and you had just about drunk half of your cup and then you said this thing about Hegel that I have never forgot. You said, and it was on like page 27. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> 
we we have we have these 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 memories that are exquisite and um, also incredibly important, but can also be incredibly damaging because we remember. Sometimes we remember too deeply. We remember, we remember when the professor said something that was inappropriate to us, that cut like a knife, and the wound is still there. 15, 20 years ago, but that wound is still there. We remember you know, the, the, the first student that treated us like we had no business being in front of them and said that to us in front of the class. We remember and we remember, but we also remember, you know, some offhanded compliment that some scholar we respected said to us in passing at a conference. And, you know, she told me <laughs> that I was, oh, that's so what. So our, our memories are crucial, not only to the work we do, but the vision we live by and the vision we need to live by. But... But remembering is also, for those of us in the education, we understand remembering is also a fundamental, fundamental gesture of our life with God, fundamental gesture of our obedience. We remember, as Ephesians 2 said, you Gentiles, you remember. And as God said to Israel time and time again, remember, you must remember. So remembering has has that role for us. Now, the, the challenge is to draw memory forward in healthy ways. So in two things I, I'm doing in the book. One, I want people to remember exactly the wounding that came and that is yet there with being formed toward becoming that white self-sufficient man. Remember that wounding. But on the other hand, I want them to remember what is the desire that brought you into the academy in the first place? What, what is it that you fell in love with in the first place that brought you? And what does it mean to take hold again of remembering that original desire and to link it to God's desire to gather? Aaron, you know, and there's a point for all of us, and, and this is one of the things the book points out, and a lot of people have emailed me about this. There's a point for all of us when we meet that man and we, we have our desire for why we're there in the academy. We meet that man, and that man says to us implicitly and sometimes explicitly through the voice of many, okay, if you want what I have, you have to take what I want to give you. If you want to be here, you must become me. That's the deal. So give me your desire. I'm going to put that away and take on mine. Here's my desire. And for so many of us, if we can remember that moment, that moment when we realize, oh, God, I've got to become him if I want to be here, if I want to be recognized and respected, that is the beginning of wisdom. <laughs> I think about that all the time, actually, because I've, I've a little bit in my, my post opted out of that. Mm-hmm. Because, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, but then I get questions like, aren't you trying to move up? What are what do you see yourself? And it becomes almost unacceptable to say, if I'm still here at the end of my career, I'll feel like I'm exactly where I'd like to be. 
you know, they don't, the, the Academy doesn't, doesn't necessarily reward that because we're always striving and we're always, so it, it doesn't seem like it has a place for people to say, this is, this is genuinely what I feel like my calling is, you know, and to, and to be happy in that. But I hear, I hear the criticism um, implicit in that question from people. You know, it's, it's unfortunate that, and I did some work with, um, as I've consulted with the Wabash Center for Teaching and Learning mm-hmm. out of Crawfordsville, Indiana. Um, the, the Wabash Center did a, we did a, um, a set of consultations with schools that have doctoral programs uh, to ask how they prepare their doctoral students to be teachers. And one of the, um, one of the revelations that came, I, I think many of us knew it, but it was a revelation, I think, for all of us together to see it, is that many of the doctoral programs, whether we're talking about Protestant or Catholic, Jewish, or um, Eastern Orthodox, many of the doctoral programs, um, they treat their graduates as if they are failures, if they don't wind up at R1, that is research one, tier one institutions doing research and some teaching. That if they are simply excellent teachers or they go get good teaching jobs where they're going to have a career of teaching and administrating and doing other things, okay, that's fine. But, you know, you really would have made us happy if you wound up at, you know, you, you, you fill in the blank. And that was the most, that was the most tragic thing I can imagine ever being said that in a program cre- programs created to form teachers to wind up simply being a teacher is a failure <laughs> that if you haven't published you know four or five articles in some german uh, magazine and you know it's i mean uh, journal i mean it's it's it's, it's, it's unbelievable and we, we were at one school and um uh, we, uh, I and my colleague from um, Wabash, Paul Myrie, we were talking to a, a director of a graduate program, and w- we asked him, and, and now we, we invited back a bunch of alums who are going through the program to talk about their experience of being formed to be teachers. So we asked him in front of them, said, so what's the goal of this doctoral program? What's the goal of this doctoral program? And he said, our goal is to place students in the best institutions in the world, R1, Research 1, Tier 1 institutions. That is our goal. Now, Aaron, in that room were like 10 or 12 alums. None of them (laughs) were teaching in R1, Tier 1 research institutions. But they all had excellent jobs teaching at liberal arts colleges and other schools. And so and when he said that, I looked around and, and all their heads kind of dropped. And then the, the assistant to the director of the graduate program, and in this case, it was a woman. In many place cases, it's a woman, <laughs> the, the assistant director. She then said, but our students all have jobs, and we are very proud of what they are doing in the places that they work. She said that, not him. <laughs> but now, here's my point in, in telling that story. <laughs> He imagined his work inside the white self-sufficient man. He imagined the formation task of that doctoral program 
to form white self-sufficient men who show control, possession, and mastery, and thereby show their finish in our one tier one institutions. And anything less is failure. Or you're not finished. You are not finished. You are not the finished man. <laughs> so in, in your chapter on um, designs, speaking of, of this, which I, I love this chapter, you have this long... Uh, discussion of paying attention, which I think ties into memory a bit. But what do you what do you what do you mean by the by the the phrase paying attention, and how does it relate to being a theological educator? For me, this was a really important point to make at the very beginning of the design chapter, in which I talk about that we are all inside designs that we did not design, and in one way, there's nothing wrong with that. But for us there is some tragedy in being inside the design of attention. So, you know, at the heart, at the very heart of the scholarly life is paying attention. That's at the very heart of it. The tragedy for us in the Western world after colonial, with the, with the rise of colonialism, is that attention has been distorted. Attention has been imprisoned. I use a really violent image there to talk about attention. Attention was raped. That is to say, attention was forced into an embrace that it did not want. It did not want that embrace. And so our vision of what is scholarly, our vision of what is serious, our vision of what has gravitas, our vision of intellectual rigor have been bound to a unrelenting Eurocentrism. And this, for so many people, is, is ground zero for destruction. Ground zero for destruction. Because they have been told that unless you pay attention not only to the world of Europe, but in exactly the way one would do it in the world of Europe, then you cannot be paid attention to because you're not you're not serious you're, you're not a, you're not a serious scholar and so the we we've lost sight we've lost sight of what is at the heart of the scholarly life well what what's at the heart of the scholarly life can't we can't get at that with the words serious gravitas rigorous scholarly we we can only get at that with returning to the crucial reality of the creature, the creature pays attention. And an education that is worth anything, Aaron, is an education that honors and cultivates and expands the ability to pay attention. So here's the, here's the irony of it. And you and, I, you, you and I both know this so well, to have scholars who have learned to pay attention, but their, their ability to pay attention is so myopic. It is so narrow. Their sight lines are so narrow. They can't see anything other than the one little thing that they've been told and taught to see to bring to them the label of serious and rigorous and scholarly. They can't see anything else. And somehow, 
they have been rewarded for that and then perpetuate that in the next generation of scholars. And so a world that God has called us to love can never, can never, that call can never be answered because our attention, our ability to pay attention has been so narrowed by a colonialist dream. So I'm trying very much with that, with, with that first part to ask faculty, to ask all of us to rethink how we design learning experiences to expand attention, not narrow it. Yeah, as I was reading the book, I, I kind of wanted to ask, you know, is when we, when we throw out the phrase, we want academic rigor, and some of these non-European approaches get labeled by Europeans as non-rigorous, right? And, you know, is, is the phrase academic rigor always, almost, I mean, always a cipher for whiteness? Um, and, and I guess more constructively, what would academic rigor look like apart from this construct of whiteness? This is, this is a crucial question. And so what we want to ask ourselves is, what do we gain with the word rigor? What do we gain with the word serious? Now, of course, I think at the heart of it, we're going after something important, but we still want to stick with this question. What we're going after is what was already there before we used those words. The call to pay attention. The call to pay attention. So, someone who's not paying attention is not being serious. Someone who is not paying attention is not present to the moment. And that, that really is what, at, at best, we mean by rigorous, right? They're not present to the moment. They're not present to the reality. But the problem for us, and you, you just stated it so well, is that a circle has been drawn around those words. And that circle is Europe. And you only are able to claim them if you step inside that circle. And if you're outside that circle, sorry. So what, what does it wind up looking like? It winds up looking like a particular way of writing, a particular way of presenting ideas, a particular way of um, arguing, disagreeing, making points, a particular way, uh, a, what is a provincial way that has been universalized, to use the language of some others. But, but the tragedy there is that our students immediately feel the knives. They immediately feel the wounding. They immediately feel that when they speak, they are yet to be heard if that form of speaking hasn't entered the circle. And so if there are articles written, books written, things said by those who clearly are not inside the circle, then, you know, we can pay attention to them a little, but we understand we don't have to look too carefully at what's being said. Well, that's so tragic to, to put it that way, but that's really an apt characterization, I think, of just the, the nature of scholarly discourse. And again, a challenge to those of us working in theological education to say, we need to opt out of this way of thinking. We need to opt out of the circle. 
the circle, the circle is the problem. Um, so we're coming to the end of our time. And I think I, I really have just maybe two questions. Well, I have so many questions, but two, I'll, I'll limit myself to two. Um, so if, if you were going to give advice to, uh, to theological educators in order to cultivate this life-giving vision of theological education, what habits, what postures do we need to be thinking about? What changes do we need to be making in our own vocation? Yeah, well, so, and in many ways, I'm, I'm just, I'm, my response is basically outlining um, those chapters in the book. <laughs> sure. So, uh, but I do think the first thing, and, and, and I already said it a moment ago, but I want to re- return to it. The first thing I think for faculty and administrators is to capture again the original desire that brought them into the academy and to, to, to think about that desire and to, to ask how might they link up that desire with the desire for gathering, and at the same time, de-link it, <laughs> to use the words of uh, Walter Mignolo, how you de-link it from um, the quest toward the white self-sufficient man. That, that's, a, that's a crucial kind of spiritual exercise moment that I think all of us have to, have to engage in. What brought me here? And what, how might I build toward a gathering? Not building toward him. And and there's some soul searching that has to happen has to happen there. But I also think what's crucial is for especially for schools as they are thinking in this moment of how they can have a, a viable future, is that they have to rethink what's what's the fundamental mission of this school? And what image, what fundamental images drive us as we're doing our work? You see, in every school, one of the exercises I would do when I, when I would go to schools to do uh, consultations, I would ask them to tell me uh, when, when they think of the graduates of their institution who are doing it right, doing it best, who comes to mind? What do they look like? When they close their eyes, okay, so-and-so graduated, yes, that's exactly what we want. And to sit together as a school and start to name those people. Honestly, and this is important, honestly, they learn something about themselves. And very often, they realize that the particular characteristics that they are seeing in these students, some are caught up in that white self-sufficient man. Others actually start to show a difference. And it will, it's important for a faculty and a staff Put that on the table. And then with that knowledge, start, as we say, as we say in terms of curriculum development, you know, you do your backward planning. You, 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 you build back from the very images of the students that, or should I say the characteristics of those students that you want to see cultivated and at work in the world. And that's a crucial, I think that's a crucial second step that faculty and staff need to take. And then the third thing I'll say uh, that I think is so important, and that is to find ways as a school, especially for faculty, to find ways to position themselves as learners from their students, especially their students of color. I mentioned this earlier. So if a school has had 
decades, decades of significant numbers of Korean students coming through their doors. That school ought to ought to show by its by its daily life the deep imprint of having had decades of Korean students coming through the door. That is, Korean students who come should say, oh, this is, oh, you, 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 oh, you speak, oh, you, that there's a sense in which the effect of their lives together have shown, show itself in the way in which the faculty have been made, them, made themselves learners so that they know and they function in, not just know in terms of, again, archive that they can bank and put away, but that, they, that their repertoire for living now has a beautiful Korean character to it because now they are three decades or four decades into having Korean students, three or four decades into having Caribbean students, three or four decades into having Indian students. And so now the school shows what those decades have meant. The, the greatest tragedy for so many schools, which is a profound sign of their whiteness and their white masculine self-sufficiency, is to be four or five or six generations into having students of color, students from various cultures, and you would not know by the daily practices of the school, by its worship life, that they have had five generations of these students because those practices are still painfully Eurocentric, painfully white, painfully untouched by the generations of students. So Aaron, it's, I'm going on too long, but let me just say this. So it's, it's, like, it's like if if you lived in my house for years and if somebody came here, they would sense that Aaron was here. Okay, because you know, okay, that's her favorite food over there. Okay, that, that's, what, that's the kind of color she likes. So I can see that Aaron was here. I can see that. And I can see you really appreciate her because you know you you picked up some of her her mannerisms by the way you talk. You know, you you know you, you smile like she does and you drink coffee like she does. So I can tell she's been here for a while. But there are so many theological institutions. When you ask, can you sense four generations of Caribbeans here? The answer is no. You can I wouldn't sense anything. We sense that the place has been unchanged. So what's your hope for this book? My hope is that it will, first of all, um, keep people awake at night for a few days. <laughs> and then my hope is that it will create, I said this at the very end in terms of the further thoughts, my hope is that it will create conversation. All I want are for faculty, staff, and students to talk together, and sometimes separately, about each one of these chapters. I just want people to, I want to put the secrets, as I said, the, the opening line of the book is the line that I, that I live to see happen. I was an academic dean. I learned all the secrets. I cannot tell you the secrets, but I can tell you what they mean. And I would hope that um, there would be conversations where people would tell each other what the secrets mean. Unscript listeners, that's all the time we have for today. We've been speaking to um, or with Dr. Willie James Jennings on his book, After Whiteness and Education and Belonging, which is published by Erdman's. Willie, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. Always good to be with you. 
And thanks, OnScript listeners. We'll see you next time. You have been listening to OnScript, delectable conversations on scripture and theology. If this episode has brought you inner peace or lit your biblical fire, please consider a small donation of just 2 or $5 per month. Information on how to donate can be found at onscript.study slash donate. 